This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you have hiking boots, that's great. Certainly, you don't want to go down in there with like flip-flops or Crocs or anything like that because it's, it can kind of be rough. And they're kind of sharp rocks at times. So you want sturdy shoes. Wait just a second. Did you say Crocs? <laughs> I did say Crocs as much as I love my Crocs. I wear them all the time. I would wear them into the caves. I mean, first, I, I think they would slip off your feet as you're going down the ladder. They might. You know, you originally bought those for camping in the evening at our campsites, right? Mm -hmm. But now, strangely, I see you wearing them kind of all the time. I wear them all the time, yeah. One time I wore them to the gym, and then I had to do the, <laughs> to do the treadmill with my Crocs on. And you know what? I, I was perfectly fine with that. <laughs> That's probably something you don't want to share. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're taking you on an epic 800-mile road trip loop in Northern California and Southern Oregon to see three spectacular national parks and two remarkable national monuments. This driving loop includes Lassen Volcanic National Park and Lava Beds National Monument in Northern California, Crater Lake National Park and Oregon Caves National Monument in Southern Oregon, and Redwoods National and State Parks along the Northern California coast. Along this route, you'll get to hike up one of the biggest lava domes on Earth, explore the largest concentration of lava tube caves in North America, take a boat tour on the deepest, most pristine lake in the United States, and gaze up at some of the tallest trees in the world. Thanks for joining us as we take you on an epic road trip through the wonders of Northern California and Southern Oregon. jump into today's topic, we wanted to talk briefly about one of our favorite subjects, bison. That's right. We just watched the new Ken Burns series called The American Buffalo. And boy, is that incredible. Yeah, he did a fantastic job, as he always does. Yeah, I mean, no surprise there. We already knew it was going to be good. But the footage, the cinematography of these wild places in the West and the bison is so incredible. And I have to say, I did learn a lot. Yeah, we learned a few things. We have been studying bison for years now, mm -hmm. kind of fascinated by them. 
Right. In fact, we did an entire episode about bison and where you can see bison in our public lands. But I think for me, I didn't understand the magnitude of not just what happened to the bison, but what happened to the American Indians, our collective American history during that period of time when the bison were on their way to going extinct. And it did answer a question for me, which was, If they killed all of those bison, where are the bones? You would think there would be bones and skulls all over the place. I mean, they they killed about 30 million bison, and they answered that in the series. They collected those and realized that actually the bones were worth a lot of money, too, so they collected them and sent them back to be processed. Yeah, a lot of really fascinating details on this show. So we highly recommend it. It's um, it's a two-part series on PBS. Each episode is two hours long. I just noticed, Matt, too, that you can also watch it on your computer. PBS has it full length, so we can put a link to that in our show notes about where people can watch it if they don't have TV. Okay, I'll do that. Okay, sounds good. But we have other bison-related news, don't we? And this is such amazing good news. Um, You may have heard, because this happened on June 26th of 2023, that up near Glacier National Park in Montana, a small herd of bison, about 40 of them, were released back into a homeland that had not had bison in over a hundred years. Yeah, that's fantastic. And 40 doesn't sound like a lot, but when bison don't have predators, and I don't know about that particular area, but I don't, I don't think there are a lot of predators up there. Those herds can grow as much as 30 to 40% a year. So that, that herd could grow pretty quickly. And I would imagine that they'll probably add to it because there are a lot of ways for these indigenous tribes to get more bison year after year. So these were released on the Blackfeet Nation by the Blackfeet Indian tribe. They organized the reintroduction. So they released the bison on a 25,000 acre tract of Blackfeet land. And this is in the Chief Mountain area. So the hope is that the bison will eventually expand their range to include the northeast area of Glacier National Park. That'd be really cool if if they wandered (laughs) over into the park. Wouldn't that be amazing to see bison inside the park? Yeah. So I didn't realize this, but the Blackfeet Nation started this seven years ago. They brought the bison onto their land with support from the Wildlife Conservation Society, the Oakland Zoo, and other partners. They brought in these genetically pure, disease-free bison from Elk Island National Park in Canada. And these bison were the direct descendants of some of the last bison to freely roam that area. So they've had them for seven years. They've kept them in pens, getting them acclimated before they release them into the wilderness. I had to look up where Elk Island National Park is. It's just outside of Edmonton. And I found out that the Canadian government purchased one of the last herds of bison from a rancher in Montana. And between 1907 and 1912, Karen, they shipped more than 700 wild bison by train to Elk Island National Park. Sounds like we need to go up to Canada and visit Elk Island National Park. Yeah, I wonder how many they have now. I think they have about 700. Still 700? Is it the same 700? (laughs) They're they're, uh, 110 years old. Right. They're getting a little elderly, but still probably worth seeing. 
All right. So the Blackfeet Nation, they have a partnership with Glacier National Park and also with Parks Canada. So the U.S. and Canada are invested in these bison and, and monitoring what's, uh, what's going to happen with them. So they're going to keep an eye on them just in case they misbehave. They'll have to put put together a plan. Right. And hopefully park visitors won't misbehave with the bison like they do in Yellowstone and some of the other parks. Right. Well, bison have a way of taking care of uh, people who misbehave, don't they? They do. Yeah. They do. So again, look for bison on your next trip. This is in the northeast area that you might potentially see them one year. So this would be up by when you make that turn off to many glacier or even further north as you head towards the Canadian border. Okay, great bison news. Yes. All right, let's dive into today's episode. You know, about a month ago, we asked listeners for suggestions on future episode topics, and a lot of you responded. And you know, we got a surprising number of requests for national park road trip itineraries, how to visit multiple parks on the same trip. And that's understandable because people traveling to the parks tend to want to see as much as they can during the week or two that they have for a specific part of the country. Today's episode, we're going to talk about a specific itinerary. That's right. A Northern California, Southern Oregon park strip. And we're going to start and end the trip in Redding, California, just to make it easier on us. And we're going to travel this loop, this circle counterclockwise. Obviously, you can start your travels wherever is most convenient for you. Right now, you can fly in and out of Reading. It's a smaller city. If, if the flights there are too expensive, you can also look at Sacramento or San Francisco, uh, which are bigger towns that are not that far away. Reading is just a convenient place to spend the night, your first night on, on the road. So we recommend doing this trip in the summer and the fall. So basically from July through early October. And that's because of the lingering snow in two of the three national parks. That would be in Lassen and Crater Lake National Park. Right. And the window's fairly short because then it starts snowing again. Right. So we we've done some of these in late September and, and have had a dusting of snow. But uh, that can actually be pretty cool, too. Those First early snows when it's just an inch or two, but you still have warm days. Those can be fun in the parks. Well, sure. And you could also do this as a winter trip if you wanted to see these parks in snow and you wanted to snowshoe. However, you're going to be crossing mountain passes that could be difficult, especially if you're in a rental car. It's tough to prepare for that kind of winter driving. So we're going to pretend that we're doing this in the summer. Okay, we're going to start in Redding, or if you're coming up from the south, you could start at the little town of Red Bluff. That's also right there on I-5. Now, we're going to drive 80 miles east to Lassen Volcanic National Park and the visitor center, the Komiamani Visitor Center, and that is at the southern end of the park, and we're going to work our way, or at least our description here, we're going to work our way from south to north through the park. Exactly. Let's talk about Lassen Volcanic National Park for a minute. I don't think we've done a full-length episode on this park, have we, Matt? I don't know. <laughs> I, 
I, you don't remember, I don't remember every single hundred forty episodes. <laughs> episode was about, but I'm guessing we probably haven't. I don't think we have. So let's talk about it for a minute because this is such an underrated park. It always surprises me that they only get about a half a million visitors a year. Now, of course, that's mostly in the summer and fall, but still, that's such a low number for what a beautiful park it is. That is a low number. Although uh, one year, I, I don't know how many years ago we were driving through just happened to have time right around I think it was Labor Day and it was crowded it was crowded on Labor Day weekend yes although I think part of that was because we had done a book signing at Whiskey Town National Recreation Area which is to the west side of Reading and Whiskey Town had closed all of their facilities like boating and camping due to a forest fire so I think that Matt everybody went to Lassen because it was one of the few places open Right. Yeah. People were looking for a great outdoor place that didn't have that. And Lassen was the perfect place to go that weekend. You know, Karen, it's also pretty high in elevation. The the elevation in the park ranges from about 5,600 feet, so a mile high, up to 10,457 feet. So you're up there a little ways. Right. And that's something to keep in mind when you're hiking, especially if you're going to hike Lassen Peak, which we'll talk about in a minute. But speaking of fire, we can't talk about Lassen without talking about the Dixie Fire, which started in July 2021 in the Feather River Canyon, which is southeast of Lassen. And then the fire entered through the southeast corner of the park on August 5th, 2021. And it wasn't fully contained until October 26th. So unfortunately, 73,000 acres within Lassen burned. It was California's largest ever single fire, and it burned almost 70% of Lassen National Park. Yeah, that's a devastating fire. If you think of the park divided by the park road that runs north and south through it, uh, really everything on the eastern side of that park road, that was where a lot of it was affected. Although the fire, probably due to fire suppression activities, it didn't get all the way to the road in a lot of places. And we have not been there since the fire, but I have read a lot of blog posts and people's reviews who say that the park is still magnificently beautiful. It's still worth visiting. And you know, now two years after the fire, green shoots and wildflowers are dotting the landscape and a lot of the burned trees have been removed. Um, You know, as the park website says, nature is resilient and adaptable. And in time, the forest will recover. Yeah. And we should also mention that that park road, even though this is a great park to visit in the winter, it that road is closed November through April. So essentially, you're going to the visitor center and then you're doing snow activities from there in the winter. Did you know, Matt, that that park road was built between 1925 and 1931? I didn't know that. No. It's a historic road. Oh, and look at the transition that we just did there. Let's talk about the park history for a minute, shall we? Uh, We shall. Okay. 
1907, that is a long time ago, President Roosevelt signed a proclamation establishing Cindercone and Lassen Peak National Monuments. So two national monuments there. And then in 1916, Lassen Volcanic National Park was established. It was our 17th national park. So they combined those two national monuments, just to be clear. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Now, the park and Lassen Peak got their name from Peter Lassen, one of the first white settlers in the northern Sacramento Valley, who apparently discovered a route through the mountains called the Lassen Trail. Very good. I'd like to just interrupt for a minute your history channel Mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about geology. Okay, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that there are four types of volcanoes and they are all represented in Lassen Volcanic National Park. Wow, I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, there's the shield type of volcano, and that's a prospect peak in the park is is a shield volcano. You got the plug dome, the old plug dome. That's <laughs> Lassen Peak is a plug dome. Cindercone, which is part of the original name of the National Monument, and so there's Cindercone is actually the name of the peak also. And then you have a composite volcano, and the broke-off volcano in the park is uh, an example of a composite volcano. That is fascinating, Matt. Yeah. Really fascinating. All right. As we said, we are going to start our little tour at the south end of the park road and work our way north. So the first stop is going to be the Visitor Center. And if I can pronounce it right, Matt, the Komyamani Visitor Center. So that's a great place to stop. Take care of your business. Talk to the ranger. Get the, you know, get the map, the brochure, all that good stuff. And the stamp. And of course, the stamp. Your passport stamp. Right, right. Okay. So as you're driving North up the park road, one of the first things you're going to come to is Bumpus Hell Trail. It's off to the right side or the eastern side of the park road, and it is one of the largest hydrothermal areas in the park. We loved this particular trail, this area. It was such a surprise to us because before we went, we didn't realize that Lassen is like a mini Yellowstone. It is, and we were there one cold morning in September, early in the morning. And the combination of early morning and cold, the steam coming up from the thermal features were really prominent. So if you have a chance to visit early in the morning, I think that's it's more dramatic. Now, this trail is an easy three-mile round-trip hike. You're going along a stretch of boardwalk, and you've got close-up views of boiling mud pods and these beautiful turquoise pools. So it really is stunning. Yeah, it looks like a little Yellowstone, like you said. Mm-hmm. If if you go to Yellowstone and you do the pull-offs where they have boardwalks around some of the thermal features, it, it looks and feels like you're in Yellowstone. Without all the people. Yeah, and this little area is named after Kendall Bumpus, who the reason it's his hell is because he burned his leg in this area. He was walking th- and he broke through a thin layer of crust and fell into scalding water and he burned his leg badly. And so that's why it's called Bumpus Hell. Yes, and that's a good um, warning to all visitors to stay on the boardwalks because, again, like Yellowstone, this is not a place where you want to step off into any of these thermal areas or any of the crusts. And one note, as we said, that the road is closed in the winter, and so this trail is only open in the summer and fall. 
We are going to continue north. You're going to come to Lassen Peak. And this is a peak that erupted last in 1915, Karen, May 22nd, 1915. It blew a huge mushroom-shaped cloud of ash over 30,000 feet into the air. And that eruption had a profound effect on the surrounding area. And this is one of the reasons why Congress made it a national park in 1916 because of that eruption and the fact that, you know, there's a active volcanic landscape there. And you can hike up to the top of Lassen Peak. And that's another reason that we are starting from the south and working our way to the north, because you want to do this hike early in the morning, if you can, or fairly early, as opposed to in the heat of the afternoon. It's a five-mile round-trip hike. You're starting at 8,500 feet of elevation, and you're gaining about 2,000 feet on your way up to the top. Yeah, and since it's a five-mile round trip, that means the one way is two and a half miles, so about 2,000 feet in two and a half miles. That's pretty steep. The rule I always go by is a 1,000 feet elevation gain per mile is about as steep as we can hike. Yes. Yeah, so this is right about at that level. Right. Now, when we visited our first time... All those years ago, we wanted to hike to the top, and we started out, however, there was a crew there working on the trail at about the halfway point, and so the trail was closed when we got to about halfway up. So that was disappointing. However, if you don't feel like doing the whole thing, you could just go up halfway, and you still have some incredible views from up there. The way this particular trail is situated you get pretty good views uh, like almost immediately. Yeah, I think it's worth doing. Even if you go up a third of the way, half the way, you're going to get great views of the rest of the park. Yeah, for sure. All right, another stop that you can make a popular place is Kings Creek Falls. This is about a 2.3-mile loop, about a 700-foot descent along the upper Cascade section of the waterfall. And just note there is a steep, narrow stone staircase that goes one way, and then when you return uphill, you go on the Cascades foot trail. So that's a popular hike to a pretty little waterfall. And we did the Manzanita Lake Loop, which is a fairly easy, about 1.7-mile round-trip hike. Not a lot of elevation gain, really, if any. Right. This is at the very north end of the park, almost at the point where you're going to be exiting. A lot of photos that you'll see of Lassen are taken from this trail. You have Manzanita Lake in the foreground and then Lassen Peak rising up behind it. And in this area, you can go swimming, uh, you can rent kayaks, camp in the campground there, or if you're lucky, you can rent one of the 20 cabins there. The Loomis Museum and Loomis Ranger Station are also located in that area. Right. And about those cabins, I saw that they come in different sizes, but there is no bedding provided. So you'd have to bring your own pillows, sheets, and blankets or sleeping bags, which could be a hassle if you're flying. Right. Yeah. So those are some of our highlights that you can do in one day. Now, before the fire swept through the east side of the park, there were a lot more hiking options. Unfortunately, a lot of trails are closed because, you know, the number of uh, dead standing trees can pose a danger to hikers. Right. They can come down, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when it's windy. And so, uh, yeah, if, if you're hiking in burnout, be very careful. Both one 
It's going to be sunnier and warmer than normal. And two, you got to watch out for trees coming down. So one note about their snow levels. This year, May of 2023, they still had a snowpack of 196 inches. Yeah, that's a lot of snow. I know, I know. That's a snowpack. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's not how much fell. And so, yeah, it's great, great for snow activities in the winter. Right. But again... We don't recommend doing this loop in June because at Lassen and at Crater Lake, there will still be a lot of trails closed and possibly even some roads as well. Okay, so doing this loop after you're done with your park activities, you could drive back to Redding for the night or you could stay at Drake's Bad Guest Ranch in the park. Yes, it's the other lodging option inside the park. And unfortunately, it was heavily damaged during the Dixie Fire. I guess since 2021, they have been repairing things, getting things ready to reopen again. They say they're going to reopen in 2024. So if this is something of interest to you, keep checking. They have their own website. Now, we haven't stayed there, but I've read a lot of the reviews. And I guess, you know, the reviews are either great or or not so great, depending on, of course, what you like. Apparently, this is rustic. There is no cell service. There's no internet service. The lodge has electricity, but there aren't any outlets in the room. And some of the bungalows don't have electricity. And in that case, they provide kerosene lamps for lighting. So it's a rustic place back there. Yeah, but people who stay there and like it uh, really do like it. We've heard great things about it. Now, the other thing to note, this is not off the main park road. This is remote. It's actually in the southeast corner of the park. So if you are staying there, change the direction you're going to see the park. Go in through the north, do the things we mentioned, come out the south, and then you'll drive to the east and back up to Drakesbad. Because it's about, gosh, what did I put here, Matt? It's about a one and a half hour drive to this guest ranch from the Komiamani Visitor Center. Yeah, it's not on the main park road. Right. It's out there. So, you know, do your planning carefully if you do stay here because you'll want to change the direction and you might also want to stay an extra day. Okay, so that's your first stop, Lassen Volcanic National Park. And from there, we're going to go north to Lava Beds National Monument, which is about two and a half to three hour drive from Redding. It's about 160 miles I would suggest maybe a half to three quarters of a day there. We just visited this park. It was was fantastic. It was. This has been in my bucket for a long time. And I really, really liked it. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I thought there was more to do here than there is in Craters of the Moon. Uh, yeah, we did. We did a good scenic drive. We did a hike. We did a couple of lava tubes. There was, there was plenty to do. And, and I think there was probably other hikes that we could have done. Absolutely. So briefly, just a tiny bit about lava beds. Over the last half a million years, volcanic eruptions on the Medicine Lake Shield Volcano, there you go, Matt, have created this rugged landscape, which is dotted with volcanic features. It has more than 800 caves. It has Native American rock art sites, historic battlefields and campsites, and a high desert wilderness. Sounds like there was some geology thrown in there. I, I didn't want to interrupt because you were on a roll there, but kind of got into the 
volcanic eruptions, <laughs> creating rugged landscapes. Just a note, though. Sorry if I stole your thunder on that. So President Calvin Coolidge designated Lava Beds a national monument back in 1925. The National Park Service has been managing it since 1933. And Matt, from 1935 to 1942, the Civilian Conservation Corps crew built most of the roads, trails, and services that allowed people to start visiting lava beds. The good old CCC. The good old CCC had a camp there. And what's really cool is you can see a lot of their work still there today. So you mentioned battlefields. What battles were going on in this area, Karen? It was the site of the Modoc Indian War of 1872 through 1873. The war began in late November of 1872 when two groups of Modoc Indians were caught by surprise by a patrol of U.S. soldiers who were sent to take the Modocs to the Klamath Indian Reservation. The confrontation ended in a shootout, and the Indians retreated to their stronghold, which today is part of Lava Beds National Monument. It's called Captain Jack's Stronghold, named after the Modoc chief, and it's a natural lava fortress. So from this base, it's really remarkable because a group of 53 Modoc warriors and their families held off up to 650 U.S. soldiers over a five-month period. As fighting escalated and the Modocs became increasingly outnumbered, they finally abandoned the stronghold and fled south. And visitors to the park can hike the 1.5-mile trail through the trenches of Captain Jack's stronghold and see where the Indians held off the soldiers. There is a lot of great information about that in the visitor center. Unfortunately, we didn't have time on our way through to explore that, but it is really fascinating. And the National Park Service does a great job of including that in all of the park literature and interpretive displays. Might have to do that next time we go. Yes. But most people go to Lava Beds National Monument to do some caving. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's your enthusiasm right there. So the park has 24 caves that have entrances and developed trails that the public can access and explore. We went into one of the tubes. I like the two of the tubes. Two, two of the tubes. <laughs> one of them I, I must have forgotten. I, I do remember one of them had, right as you entered, it had headache rock that we had to watch out for because <laughs> you smack your head yes. on, on the rock as yeah, you're climbing, that, climbing down the ladder. That was the Golden Dome Cave. That's what you remember. That's your takeaway I from the remember park. Headache, <laughs> headache rock. rock. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go back. First off, all visitors need a caving permit before entering any cave. Now, this is really easy to get. They're free. You just pick them up at the visitor center during operating hours. Also, before you leave the visitor center, you really need to walk across the disinfecting mat that they have right outside the front door. And this is to prevent the spread of white nose syndrome to any of the bats that might be in the cave. This is white nose syndrome is something that's been spreading through the United States. It affects bats. They don't want 
that fungus to um, come into any of their caves. Right. And the park ranger that was on duty when we picked up our permit did a fantastic job talking to us about this and emphasizing that even after years have gone by since you might have visited a cave, if you are wearing the same jacket or the same shoes, that fungus, that white nose syndrome fungus can live on your apparel and you can take it into the next cave with you. So it's really, really important because, of course, whole colonies of bats have been just completely decimated by this disease. That's right. And a couple of other things to keep in mind, even in the summertime when it's really warm outside, it's going to be cool in the cave. So dress warmly or at least have a jacket with you that you can take into the cave because you'll need it. Yes. And, And also sturdy shoes. The floor of a lot of these lava tubes are pretty rough with rocks. So If you have hiking boots, that's great. Certainly, you don't want to go down in there with like flip-flops or Crocs or anything like that because it can kind of be rough. And they're kind of sharp rocks at times. So you want sturdy shoes. Yeah. And you know, that's one thing that surprised me about this uh, because we have been in the national park caves where you are kind of on a smooth path and there's lighting. These caves are very primitive. You are climbing over rocks. There are some places that are wet. You know, the ceiling's a little drippy. And of course, it's very dark. So the third thing we want to note is to bring a light source, or even better, two light sources. I think you really do need two, and here's why. A lot of times, I've just thought, well, I'll wear my headlamp, and that's fine. But what I have found is a lot of times I need to shine my light on two different spots at the same time. So I'm pointing somewhere with my head, but I might need to glance down at my shoes. And so I I carry a handheld flashlight, a good one, a bright one, and then the headlamp. Do not rely on the flashlight on your phone. It's just not going to be bright enough. No, definitely not. And also the park website says that they do have some flashlights in the visitor center to loan out. But, you know, if you go during a busy time, there's a good chance they could all be out on loan. So definitely bring a light source. And this is a really good time to, you know, if you're going with your kids, by the way, this is a fantastic park for kids. Um, make sure we, we've talked about, you know, how everyone should carry the 10 essentials and and that includes a headlamp. So it's a great time if your children don't have a headlamp or you don't have a headlamp to buy one, put it in your pack, and then you will always have it with you on future park visits to all the parks. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So we went to a couple of caves. The first one, which is just walking distance from the visitor center, so you don't have to drive anywhere, just walk down the the nice paved sidewalk all the way to the entrance, the Mush Pot Cave. It's the only cave in the park that has lights inside the cave. Right. And they also have interpretive signs. This trail in this lava tube is about 770 feet long. So it doesn't take a very long time to explore. It also has a nice staircase that goes down into the cave with a hand railing. So if anyone has any slight mobility issues, maybe isn't super steady on their feet, this is a good one because they have eliminated a lot of rocks in the trail. This is the easiest one by far. Yeah. Now, also right from the visitor center, you have the Cave Loop Road, and there are several tube entrances along that road. There are little pullouts, so they each have their own little parking area. I'm not sure how many are along. There may be six or eight 
There are also a lot of other lava tubes that are not on this cave loop road, but they are pretty clearly marked on the park map. So you can find them and explore the ones that you want to do. Uh, just one note, on the park website, they list these caves in order from least challenging to most challenging, which is really helpful, especially maybe if you have little tiny kids with you. Right, or people with mobility issues. It's nice to know ahead of time how difficult it's going to be. But a very fun park for kids of all ages to explore. One more thing we did when we were there, we we checked out the Sconchen Butte Fire Lookout that was built by the CCC between 1939 and 1941. That was a good hike, especially, well, for one, it was above ground, which is, <laughs> which is what I like. Uh, it was just strenuous enough that you felt like you got some exercise in, but it wasn't too strenuous. It was about a mile and a half round trip, so 0.7 miles each way. And it's a Cool lookout when you get to the top. Just classic national park looking structure up there. Very cool. And, and you know, the, they used a lot of rocks and a lot of lava rocks as they built not just the fire lookout, but picnic tables and things. So very, uh, very unique, very cool. Now, this park only gets about 100,000 visitors a year. I'm guessing mostly in the summer. But when we went, it was um, just after Labor Day in September, and we saw almost no one. We saw maybe five people the whole time we were there. Right. It's a nice area that is in contrast to a lot of the national parks these days that have a ton of people. This one, you kind of feel a little bit like you have the place to yourself. Yes, and there is a very long park road that will take you from the south to the north, and you're driving through a lot of lava fields with, of course, the black lava rocks. So it's kind of that otherworldly landscape, similar to Craters of the Moon. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Karen, we are going to go from here north to Crater Lake National Park in Oregon. So a couple of options. There are not a lot of places to stay around lava beds. So you can drive to the town of Klamath Falls and stay there. That's about 40 miles to the north. Or if you can get reservations inside Crater Lake National Park, you could drive straight there. That's about 90 miles away from lava beds. Yeah, the Crater Lake Lodge is uh, a blast. We've stayed there a couple of times. It's not super easy to get reservations there. Um, they also have cabins at the Mazama Village inside the park. Those are a couple of places. There are some campgrounds as well if you want to camp. Right. We have done an entire episode on Crater Lake National Park, so we're not going to linger on this one. But if you have never been there before, it's the deepest lake in the United States and one of the most pristine on earth. And I have to say, it's one of the most beautiful places we have ever seen. It does have kind of that same feeling when you look into the Grand Canyon for the first time. 
looking over the rim into Crater Lake. It's it's one of those views that it's, it's hard to describe, but it's something everyone should see at least once. Absolutely. And as we mentioned, this is another high elevation snowy park. The lake elevation itself sits at about 6,200 feet. And when you are on the rim road, you're above that. And of course, there are some um, hikes that will take you even higher. So you're, you're at a high elevation at Crater Lake. Karen, let's talk about what you can do in one full day in the park. One day, you can see a lot. So since you're going to be coming from either Klamath Falls or Lava Beds, you're going to come in the south entrance. And almost immediately, you're going to be at the historic Rim Village. So you can check out the Visitor Center. You can check out Crater Lake Lodge, which even if you're not staying there, you should go see it. It's a beautiful lodge, classic national park kind of architecture. They've got a uh, fun outdoor porch on the back with big chairs that you can sit and look at the lake. It's a beautiful view. So that's worth seeing even if you're not staying there. Also in the Rim Village, there is a building that has a cafe and a big gift store. I think there's also like a little museum. It really is kind of like a small village. There's some picnic tables. It's a whole area. There's also, um, you can walk along the rim. There's a paved sidewalk that goes along the rim for a, a little ways. You can just take a stroll there too. The further you go on that rim trail, the fewer people you're going to encounter, and it doesn't take long to get kind of past the crowds. Okay, so a couple of things you won't want to miss. You're going to want to drive the historic rim drive. Now, I just want to point out again, because a lot of people are disappointed when they go visit these parks too early. We went this past summer, we went in the middle of July, and because of their snowfall, the historic rim drive still wasn't opened yet. They hadn't finished plowing it yet. Yeah, you really do have to manage your expectations when you go to some of these places that are up high in elevation and get a lot of snow in the winter. So this drive that goes around the lake is 33 miles. It has 30 overlooks, uh, but it is a narrow winding road and the speed limit is 35 miles per hour or less. So it's going to take you a while to do this entire loop. And Karen, did you know way back in 1913, that men often plowed this road, at least part of the road, with horses, horse-powered plows. It's another historic road, just like the road through Lassen. Now, one thing you could do when you're in the south and you travel this road about halfway to the north, that is where the Cleetwood Cove Trail is that takes you down to the boat dock. So you could do a boat tour on Crater Lake. And it takes you all the way down to the lake, so you can... Play around on the beach at the lake, go swimming if you want. Now, that's a mile trail down there, and it's about 700 feet elevation change. So going down is not all that hard, but you're going to have to come back up. Right. Now, we still have not done a boat tour. We were hoping to do it in mid-July when we were there, which I think normally the boat tours would have been running by then, but they got a, a brand new fleet of boats. And apparently they had to have them, what, approved by the Coast Guard? Right. They had to be certified by the Coast Guard. I'm sure that they had some training to do. I don't know what took them that long, but it took until almost the end of August 
before they opened up the boat tours this year, 2023. Right. But hopefully that's not going to be the case next year. But you definitely want to buy your tickets online ahead of time. There are two different choices when it comes to the boat tours. You could do the two-hour boat cruise that goes around the lake Or there is a much longer cruise that drops you off at Wizard Island for three hours. I think they used to drop you off and leave. And I think with the new boats, the boat stays. Oh, does it? I think, yes. That that would probably make you feel better. It would make me feel better. Yeah. (laughs) I know that's one of the reasons we didn't do that one on our first trip, because you didn't like the idea of them dropping you off. Where's the boat going? (laughs) Right. See ya. (laughs) So one of these days, we are going to be able to do the boat cruise. One of these summers, hopefully maybe next summer, we'll try again. But there's also hikes in the park that are uh, great to do. A couple of that we've done that we've done multiple times because we enjoy them so much. There's the Watchman Peak Trail. It's about 1.7 miles round trip. Not not a ton of elevation gain, but but some. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Garfield Peak, which is 3.5 miles round trip. Uh, a little bit more elevation gain, about a thousand feet. I like that trail. It, it's also pretty convenient because it starts right from the lodge. Yes, we do that every time. The views from the top of Garfield Peak are incredible. Put this one on your list. So that's going to take you a full day. Let's say if you do the, you check out the Rim Village, you drive the Rim Drive, you go on a two-hour boat tour, and you do a couple of these hikes. So now you have a full day. <laughs> Hopefully... You have secured lodging inside the park, but if you haven't, because of the direction that we're going, we would recommend that you drive and stay in Medford, Oregon, rather than Grants Pass. And this is about 75 miles away, so you're going to have a little bit of a drive when you leave the park. And from Medford, we're then going to make our way to the California coast to Redwoods National Park. But before we get there, we're going to stop at Oregon Caves National Monument. As you make your way down Highway 199 towards Crescent City, you'll come to a tiny town that's called Cave Junction. And that is where the turnoff to Oregon Caves is. And it's about another 45-minute drive to this national monument. Now, we haven't been there yet, but Matt, this has been in my bucket. I think the last time we drove that that highway down to Crescent City, the cave tours weren't happening because of COVID. But... People who have been there have told us about it. One gentleman told us that it was so beautiful he cried when he was there. Yeah, you know, I think that crying in a park is always the ultimate compliment. Well, you cry a lot. Sometimes, Karen, you cry on the trail. I've seen you cry on trails before. Okay, well, that's a whole different thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's not necessarily crying from joy or because you love something. You're not supposed to cry on the trail. Okay, so a brief history, because this is so fascinating. I mean, a lot of people have never even heard of Oregon Caves National Monument. But in 1903, Matt, President Teddy Roosevelt designated millions of acres of forest land for protection. And that includes what became Siskiyou National Forest. This is the forest that surrounds the cave. And the United States Forest Service was created in 1905 to manage this forest area. Three years later, Congress passed the Antiquities Act, which allowed presidents to designate national monuments. So in 1909, President William Howard Taft established Oregon Caves National Monument to be managed by the 
United States Forest Service, because remember, the National Park Service hasn't been created yet. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just remembered that. Right. A year later, the Forest Service hired men to guard the cave and to serve as tour guides. So those were the first tour guides, Forest Service employees. Why did they have to guard the cave? Well, back in 1874, that was the first recorded date of white people entering the cave. And there were a lot of people at that time who wanted to develop it and make money off it. So during those first cave explorations, I guess stalactites were broken off to mark the way, you know, so they wouldn't get lost. And then later, the stalactites were broken off as souvenirs for visitors. So the cave suffered a lot of damage before the National Force stepped in to protect it. What happened to the stalagmites? Is the stalagmite still there? Yeah, Matt, that's they information that I do not have today. Broke those off also? <laughs> okay. <laughs> And in 1933, management of the monument was transferred from the Forest Service to the National Park Service. And at that time, a six-story hotel was built, the Oregon Caves Chateau. It was completed in 1934. And you know what I think is so interesting? I could go deep into the history, but I'll just mention one point. In Los Angeles, a company called Mason Manufacturing produced all the furniture for the chateau. This in the style is called Monterey. So I guess you can still see this furniture in the chateau. And now the value of this furniture is valued at $5,000 for one chair. Seriously? $5,000 for a 100-year-old chair? Well, yes, you know, they were built in that craftsman style, and many of the furniture pieces were then hand-painted. Do you know how many people have sat in those chairs? Well, probably a lot. A lot. <laughs> Do you think that diminishes? The, I don't the know. Price? I'm just, just curious. It, it just jumped out at me. I would like to go to Oregon Caves just to see this Monterey furniture. It sounds pretty amazing. Okay, yeah, let's let's do the 11-hour drive down there just to see the chairs. <laughs> All right, so during the 1930s and early 1940s, the CCC installed water, telephone lines, improved trails, and worked on landscaping. The chalet, the chateau, was rebuilt in 1942 to include a third story and a larger dormitory for women. And did you know that it's haunted? Well, yes, we talked about this in, on one of our Halloween episodes. Yes, it was last year's Haunted National Park Lodge's Halloween episode. Guy married his wife and threw her off the roof or something. She was... Oh, you mean was... you were actually listening? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. shocking. Yeah, she slid down the roof, flew past the windows. Yeah, people I have to tune into that episode. Right, to see what happened. Now, unfortunately, the chateau is currently closed due to a large-scale rehabilitation project. And they were supposed to open. It was supposed to be a two-year closure. They were supposed to open this past summer in 2023. I wanted to go and stay there, but they still haven't reopened. And there is no reopening date. I read on some message threads that they seem to be um, having some trouble. I think there were more issues with the foundation than they had previously thought. So stay tuned. But if you are planning this for 2024, definitely check out the website and see if the chateau has reopened because that would be a fun place to stay. Yeah, but while you're there, you can tour the caves. Is that right? Yes, you can. You can tour them Thursday through Monday. In most years, that 
goes through the first week in November. So this year, that's November 5th is when those tours stop. And just keep in mind, as we don't when we plan our trips, it's closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So if we're ever there, it'll be a Tuesday or Wednesday. <laughs> right. And it's not the park that's closed. It's the cave tours are closed. So you could still go to the park. I'm not sure if it would be worth it if you can't tour the cave. But you could look at the $5,000 chair. Yes, you could. <laughs> now, this is one of the few parks where you can't actually buy your tour tickets online ahead of time. They are first come, first served. And what the park recommends is that in the little town of Cave Junction that I mentioned, you can stop at the Illinois Valley Visitor Center and buy your cave tickets there. That way, you can make sure you have a cave tour spot before you drive the 45 minutes to get to the cave. For those of you traveling with small children, the cave tours don't allow kids under 42 inches tall on any of the cave tours. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah, 42 inches. Yeah. Measure them before you go. Right. Okay. So if you are driving to the cave from either Crater Lake or Medford, getting to the cave is going to take you about two to three hours, depending on which spot you're coming from. Then, of course, you're going to need time to do the tour. You're going to need time to check out the chateau and its beautiful furniture yeah, <laughs> if it's take open. A couple, put a couple chairs in your <laughs> trunk. <laughs> then it's a two-hour drive to Crescent City. So that's a full day right there. Yeah, that, that's it, your day. It really is, yeah. So if you don't want to visit the Oregon Caves, and I can't imagine why somebody wouldn't want to go in a cave, but you could, Karen, skip the cave tour and then on your way to Crescent City... Stop at Jedediah Smith Redwoods State Park, which is right outside of Crescent City, and drive through there, maybe even take a little hike. Absolutely. Because if you're going to skip the cave, you're going to have you know a half day you could spend in Jedediah Smith Redwoods State Park, which I think I could say for both of us is our favorite part of the entire Redwoods National Park Complex. Right. I love that drive, that Howland Hill Road that you can drive through the park I don't think it allows trailers. It, it's a pretty narrow road. It's sometimes it's one lane when it's passing between a couple of large trees. I don't think there's anywhere to turn a trailer around. So just know that. Yeah. But then inside that park, there are several great hikes. Yes. We're going to mention three fantastic hikes. There's the Grove of Titans, there's the Boy Scout Trail, and there is Stout Grove. These are three of the top-rated hikes. They're not terribly long or difficult, so you could do all three. Right. If you mm -hmm. want to see a lot of big trees. Yes. And then, you know, because this is going to be a full day, we would suggest staying in Crescent City. Now, you know, we've had some people ask us if Crescent City is safe to stay in. Yeah, I think it's perfectly safe. We have yeah. had no issues yeah, before. None. Yeah, I, I don't recall any reason to be concerned about Crescent City. Yeah, we have not had any issues. And, you know, it's so convenient to Jedediah Smith. If you're going to stay, of course, there are other places to stay. It's going to be, you know, a longer drive to get there. One place we have to recommend that's new that people are raving about is Sea Quake Brewing in Crescent City. We always love a good brewery. Now, the last time we stayed in Crescent City, unfortunately, they hadn't opened yet. No. Yep. So we'll have to go back and check them out. 
Yeah, Matt, I wanted to tell people about that hike we did. This is just south of Crescent City, right off Highway 101, the Damnation Creek Trail. (laughs) You want to tell people about that? I loved this trail. Yeah. When it has damnation in the name, you know it's going to be fun. Yeah, apparently settlers in the 1800s had a brutal time getting through this area, and that's uh, one version of how Damnation Creek got the name. I assumed it was because of the elevation gain on the hike out. Well, you're not wrong about that. This one is four miles round trip, but you are descending about 1,200 feet to this little private beach. It's like this little cove, and there was absolutely nobody there when we did it. Yeah, and on that trail, there are a a few footbridges that were washed out and... We had to go down into the ravines and make our way back up to the trail. Yeah. They're finally rebuilding those bridges. Thank goodness. But check the park website before you do this hike, because I think they close this trail a couple of days during the week so they can work on these bridges. The other thing, too, is check the tide table so that when you get down to the beach and you're exploring the cove and climbing over the rocks, you don't get stuck somewhere uh, when the tide comes in. (laughs) Yeah, or you're going to be wading back home. Right. But I thought this was absolutely beautiful because you've got not just the coastal redwoods that you're hiking through, but then you go down and you've got this incredibly beautiful little rocky beach and there was fog coming up. And again, at the time, we had it completely to ourselves. I think it was January, so that might have been a reason. Right. (laughs) Now, if you keep going south, you get to the Prairie Creek Redwoods State Park. Now, there's only about 30 miles distance between Jedediah Smith and, and Prairie Creek Redwoods. And this is something that confused us the first time we were in this area, is that the national park and the state parks, they... They're all kind of co-managed and they are adjacent to each other. You're kind of never sure whether or not you're in the national park or one of the state parks. And in the end, I don't think it really matters because it's all, you know, similar landscape. Yes. And that's a really good point because when we first, very first went to Redwoods, we were fixated on hiking inside the national park, not the state parks. So we did just a really mediocre hike in the national park, so to speak. And I won't say we wasted our time because, you know, a hike is always great, but we didn't see a lot of these other things that we're talking about because we were fixated on the national park and not the state parks. But if you're going to go to this Prairie Creek area, you want to make sure to drive the Newton B. Drury Scenic Parkway. And it takes you past several sites. You got the Big Tree Wayside that has a 300 foot towering redwood tree Mm -hmm. right right by it there's also bald hill road which is paved only for the first 14 miles but that meanders through the ladybird johnson grove and then onto schoolhouse peak which is a great place to have a picnic and take in the views but i think one of the must-see sites which we haven't actually seen is fern canyon at least from what people tell us Well, we tried to do it, Yes, but Mm -hmm. it was a very rainy day, and this is a wet hike even on dry days, 
And so between the rain and the fact that you're hiking through a creek for part of it, we just decided not to do it. Right. You have to have a permit to do this hike during certain times of the year, which we'll talk about in a second. And we were able to get a permit. I was so excited to do it. And literally on the morning of when we woke up, It wasn't just raining, it was a monsoon. And apparently the road that you have to take to the trailhead is a little iffy, even under good conditions. And so we made the call that we would bail on that and instead we went up to Jedediah Smith. So so not a bad plan B. But if you do the hike, it does take you past 50 foot tall walls of hanging gardens draped with seven different species of ferns. Seven, Karen. Yeah, I guess that um, this was used as a setting in the film Jurassic Park 2 Lost Worlds because it has that kind of primeval looking setting. Where you'd find dinosaurs. Where you would find dinosaurs, right. I don't think there currently are any dinosaurs there. No, However, but we haven't, we haven't hiked the trail, <laughs> right, so we, we don't know. We can't say for sure. So what you're going to do is you're actually going to Gold Bluffs Beach. That's where the trailhead is. And reservations are required from May 15th through September 15th. And you can only make these reservations online ahead of time. Yeah. Now it's a one mile lollipop loop from the trailhead. So once you get to the trailhead, it's not that far, but like we said, prepare to get wet. Mm -hmm. You're going to be hiking in water part of the way, even on dry days. But even if you don't have a reservation, you can still get to Fern Canyon from trails within Prairie Creek State Park. Right from the visitor center, you can hike to Fern Canyon. It's about 10 miles round trip via the James Irvine Trail. That would be fun to do. So the reservation basically is to park at Gold Bluffs Beach. It's not to do the hike. So if you want a longer hike, uh, I actually think that would be fun. Have a 10 mile hike. Well, if you get the reservations, you're hiking a mile. If you don't have reservations, you're hiking 10 miles. Right. So that's the difference. And Maybe you want to hike 10 miles, so that'd be perfectly fine. Last time, as we were driving through, we stopped at the Prairie Creek wet Wedwoods. The <laughs> Wedwoods site. <laughs> we stopped at the Prairie Creek Redwoods headquarters in the visitor's center, and there is a trail there right across the street. Um, you can do the um, Big Trees Wayside and then come back on the Cathedral Tree Trail. It was an easy trail, but gosh, there were some big redwoods along that trail. It was. I, I do remember it, There's there was not much elevation gain at all. It was a pretty easy hike, but man, there are big trees. So, you know, as we're talking about these things, you are making your way south. So you don't want to go back up to Crescent City, most likely. A nice town to stay in is um, Arcata. We stayed there the last time we were in the area, and we really like that. We like the town. I, I remember having breakfast at one of the diners and getting um, pigs in a blanket. So that's... <laughs> That's what I remember about Arcata. <laughs> they had a good brewery that we went to with a food truck. That's what I remember. But um, we really liked Arcata. At this point, we are wrapping up the trip. So from Arcata, you can take Highway 299 back to Redding. If this is where you're ending your trip, it's about 140 miles from Arcata to Redding. Or if you, let's say you flew into San Francisco, you could just 
continue down the coast. Now, that coastal drive's great. You go through Fort Bragg. That's right. Highway 1 is incredible. Now, a lot of people aren't fans of it because it can be uh, narrow and winding, and there are some steep drop-offs down to the ocean. I think it's one of the most gorgeous drives we've ever done. It is a little um, it is a little bit of a nail-biter at some points, I think, but absolutely stunning. One more note, you could add Point Reyes National Seashore. You would be going by that area. Another great park. We did an entire episode on that because we loved it so much. So we have this trip in the Reading Circle pegged at about eight days. But of course, you could extend it to two weeks and see a lot of other things. That's right. So, Karen, let's recap. Okay. Uh, day one, you're traveling to Redding. Mm-hmm. Day two, you're in Lassen National Park. You're spending the night back in Redding. Day three, you're going to drive to Lava Beds, spend the night in Klamath Falls, or all the way to Crater Lake National Park that day. Uh, day four is in Crater Lake National Park. Probably spend the night in Medford. Day five, drive to Crescent City, stopping at the Oregon Caves along the way, or Jedediah Smith. Day six, you're in the Redwoods. You could do Jedediah Smith if you didn't do it the day before, and plenty of hikes to do in and around the Redwoods there. Day seven is also in the Redwoods in the Prairie Creek area, spend the night in Arcata, and then day eight, traveling back home, whether that's Redding or San Francisco or Sacramento. Absolutely. You could customize this to whatever you like to do, wherever you're coming from, how much time you have. But this is just a fantastic loop that has, what did we cover? Three national parks and two national monuments. Yeah, plenty of incredible public lands to visit. Right, and you will get to see such a diverse landscape. So, you know, you have the um, beautiful forests and lakes and thermal features of Lassen. You have the, the lava flows at lava beds. You've got the deepest lake in the country at Crater Lake. Then you've got Oregon Caves, a beautiful cave. And then you've got the towering redwoods. So five really diverse, unique landscapes in one 800-mile road trip. Yeah, a really fantastic loop. And that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you all for joining us on this epic road trip. If you've been enjoying our podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you took a minute and left a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It really helps new listeners find our show. And even if you didn't listen to this episode on Apple Podcast, you can still leave a review there. That's right. You know, we just read a review on Apple Podcasts from someone who wrote that they'd already left one review a few years ago, but they felt compelled to leave a second review because they're still listening and still enjoying our podcast. So, you know, feel free to double up as well. Exactly. Double up. (laughs) Hadn't thought about that before. Everybody go leave another review or three or four. How many times can you leave a review? I, I think it's unlimited. Let's test the limit. Okay, let's do it. All right. Much love to all of you. Thank you.